Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience, although, God, it's getting close to 50. <laughs> yeah, it really is, man. <laughs> That's really scary. I'm the, guy, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, we're not going to the pub. You guys left us enough feedback from the uh, couple of episodes that we did with John Palmer and some other gallivanting that's happened that we are going to go and cover all that information, talk about what we're brewing, what Denny's planning on brewing, and you know, really what the hell is going on before we give you something other than beer and get you out of here. And we're also going to be talking to David James, the winner of the uh, KLCC homebrew competition here in Eugene. Uh, a pretty big deal that comes around once a year. Um, and I hope that everybody appreciates the fact that we're skipping the pub so Drew and I don't get to have a beer today. That's what you think. I'm going to have a beer anyway. <laughs> later, later. Yep. But before we can do any of that stuff, we need to take a quick break so you can hear from the people who make this show possible. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching match efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support.
Welcome back, everybody. And we got some announcements to kick things off with. Oh, boy, and howdy. So a couple things that you need to know. Uh, one, go check your podcast feed because the last episode came up. And it was me talking with Masa about how Masa makes his guava. I gotta, I gotta make sure I get enough syllables on that. Ah, <laughs> guava goes. And, you know, how he won the Doug King competition. It's funny, we got a couple of competition winners back to back. So that's good. Cool. And we also want to remind you about the American Homebrewers Association Homebrew Con happening June 22nd through 24th in San Diego. There'll be speakers to listen to. There'll be beers to try. There'll be a lot of fun to be had. Uh, we are giving a seminar on modern hop techniques and West Coast IPA. What beer exemplifies the modern West Coast IPA to you? I have a few in mind. We want to hear what you think. And again, we hope we, you'll show up in San Diego on June 22nd for Homebrew Con. We might even have beer in our talk. Wouldn't that be novel? <laughs> we might. We'll see. All right. And next up, a migration update. You may have noticed the website has changed. God, I hope you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> But the, uh, the website has changed. We are on a new hosting provider. I am still migrating content over, so all the blog posts are over. All the episodes are live. Uh, now I'm in the middle of migrating the recipes and experiments and fixing show notes. So give me a little time. But if you find missing links, please let me know. Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... We have a new one, and uh, as usual, it involves animals. It's called Best Friends Save Them All. It's an organization that is dedicating to getting animals out of shelters where they were going to be killed and getting them into no-kill shelters, getting them adopted, getting a new life for them. So uh, please throw us a few bucks for best friends, and we'll pass it along for all of our best friends. Yeah, best friends does some work down here in L.A. to help uh, you know, get the shelters a little bit more clear. Although right now the LA County shelters are still running pretty close to no kill. So yay. Yeah, that's great, man. <laughs> all right. Now it's time for that part of the show that we love to talk to you all about. It's time for your feedback. feedback. <laughs> and boy, do we have feedback today. Boy, do we have feedback. In fact, we have so much feedback that some of the feedback is going to be here and some of the feedback is going to be later in the show. So, First piece of feedback comes from Kurt Green. Uh, Denny had a great comment about taking stock of your ingredients if you buy in bulk. But Beersmith, Brewfather, and others have great inventory features. I use them, and being able to build recipes from what I have in stock and being able to easily find the ingredients is a killer feature. The extra effort to maintain the inventory in the software pays in the long run. And Kurt, I'm guessing you still balance your checkbook. <laughs> Oh, I've been doing our bookkeeping for the last year. Uh, I can relate to that horror. (laughs) (laughs) Kurt is absolutely right. Most modern brewing software, I mean, actually, I think even ProMash had it back in the day. Yeah, ProMash had it. So, you know, you could do this 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, You know, you can totally track your inventory. I love the idea. And it's one of those things I keep telling myself, you know, Drew, you have a homebrew store in your garage. Maybe you should track what you have. Yes, yes, self. That is the reasonable, responsible adult thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But that would require us to be reasonable, responsible adults, and that ain't going to happen. Uh, you know, I just kind of 
uh, two or three times a year, I just kind of go out and dig through all the bins where I have my grain and say, okay, I got about that much of that and that much of that. And that's, that's as much as I can do. But if you're one of those people who like Kurt can actually get yourself to do responsible things. Uh, yeah, the inventory tracker in the software is a great thing. Next piece of feedback comes from Dan Chisholm, who says, I was just listening to the last episode and wanted to let you know that I'll be brewing my annual barley wine soon. So remember we had a replay episode where we talked about making barley wine. Uh, I made one every year for the last 15 years or so. When the weather starts getting cold, I really look forward to making this beer and tasting different years that I have stored. If you ever want to talk about American barley wine, I could probably talk your ear off. Anyway, I know it's not a very popular style, but my wife and I love splitting a bottle on a cold winter's night and discuss the flavors while sipping. I think this style deserves more love, and I hope more homebrewers and probrewers will be willing to give it a try. Dan, to that, all I can say is barley wine is life. Uh, yeah, man, I I totally agree. Uh, I just had my first uh, Sierra Nevada Bigfoot of the season uh, last week, and I'll be talking about that in the pub next week. It's a stunning beer. Uh, I used to get together with two friends uh, once a year, and we would make a batch of barley wine, and then we all got too old to drink beer that strong so <laughs> you guys started to put a little too much old in the old stoner and that's right you know um but i have to admit that uh, we've been having an exceptionally cold wet and snowy winter here and i find myself going to stronger beers i uh, broke out a bottle of ale song maestro barley wine last night well and i still have a 12 pack of vintage bigfoot sitting right behind me where i'm, where I'm standing oh, so oh, maybe i need to break into some of that yep all the way back to 2010 2011 wow about probably it was about ten years ago, I got to go to a, a Bigfoot tasting that a friend put on, and he had I think about fifteen years worth. Mm-hmm. And you know, the one thing that really blew me away about that was how consistent all those beers were. You know, but between the oldest one and the newest one, you could really tell what was going on and that it was the same beer. Oh yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing how well they can do that, and I think. I think inside the the house I have a 1996. <laughs> wow! Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, one of these days I probably ought to drink it. But yeah, yeah, I guess you should. Uh, Dan, one thing I do find interesting is we. I, I mean, okay, granted, running in sort of beer nerdy circles may bias me on this one, but I am seeing a lot more chatter about barley wine out there. And more people talking about it, more people either lamenting that doesn't exist or more people talking about people who are making one. I don't think we're ever going to get back to the days of, you know, every brewery having a barley wine that they released during the winter. But I'll be happy if more people are making it. Maybe somebody needs to make a hazy barley wine. Stop. <laughs> no, just just to get all the uh, the hipsters interested in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, th- I think maybe it's just... We we stay the course on that one, and just like, you know, bell bottoms, it will come back. Right. We'll see. All right. Uh, Tom Webster writes in to say, on Saturday, I drove to a nearby orchard to get juice for brewing cider. On the way, I listened to the episode on the Yakima Chief survivables chart. So good. I've shared it up on the Spartanburg Blue Club page. Big thanks. And attached, you'll find a pic of my continued testing of Denny's assertion that fresh aluminum foil can be sterile. Hasn't failed me yet. Yay! Yay! Me either. Yeah, yeah. Drew's, Drew's just unreasonably paranoid. You say unreasonably paranoid, I say just optimistically cautious. <laughs> or unreasonably paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Ken Collins wrote in about Yellowstone. You'll remember uh, 
sometime back in January, I made a comment about Yellowstone and for it being both fascinating and absolutely repugnant. Um, and Ken wrote in to say, I agree with your comments on the Yellowstone show. It is like a remake of Dallas. The Dutton family is evil, but the scenery is great. Absolutely agree so far with you, Ken. If you want to watch a good Western-type show, consider Longmire. It is on Peacock and Netflix. It is a contemporary thriller with a sheriff in Wyoming who is rebuilding his life and career following the death of his wife. Nice scenery and a good hero sheriff instead of a crooked rich family. Main characters include Robert Taylor, Katie Sackhoff, who I absolutely love, and Lou Diamond Phillips, who I also love because I'm Gen X. Robert Taylor is the sheriff, and Lou Diamond Phillips is a Native American that owns a bar and is Longmire's best friend. And, you know, Ken, I've been Longmire adjacent for a while, and I've just never gotten the gumption up to, to watch it. So now i got to go watch it because, yeah, I think it's probably better. And I haven't seen Yellowstone, Longmire, or Dallas, and probably never will. How the hell did you avoid Dallas back in the 80s? I mean, there was only like three channels on why would I want to watch that crap? Because it's on in the background. I don't know. Somehow I somehow I managed to watch it, and of course I didn't have the remote control back in the days. It <laughs> says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Next week's feedback comes from uh, James Ward, who wrote in about the two beer breweries. Remember we talked about was it uh, Sacred Profane up in Maine that's doing just the two Czech beers? Uh, I remember in a podcast a few months, you mentioned being interested in bars slash breweries with only two beers on tap. There's a great example of this in the area of the West Midlands, England, where I grew up called the Black Country. It is the ex-industrial area surrounding Birmingham, so think Peaky Blinders and you're pretty close. And I have that hat. Um, Batham's Brewery and the pub adjoined in the, to the brewery, the Vine, called the Bull and Bladder by locals, only serves a mild and bitter on cask all year round. They're both excellent. I especially love the mild, copper-colored, 3.5%, rich and sweet fruitiness, but balanced hop bitterness and flavor to keep you drinking. Most pints go down in around three swigs. It is perfect with cheese and onion cob and some pork pie, the only food on sale. That's from uh, Jim, who says he's now living in Harrogate, Yorkshire, but always a yam. And (laughs) uh, Jim, all I got to do is say, yeah, please give me multiples of both of those. I'm perfectly happy with that. I'll even take the cheese and onion sandwich, damn it. Oh, I was, yeah, I was going to say, I'll take the cheese and onion cob and pork pie, man. It's like, yeah, give it to me. Yeah, but no, I, I love the idea of a place that can pull off just a handful of well-executed beers. Uh, like I said, with Sacred and Profane, when we talked about it, um, I'm, I'll be curious to see how well that can actually work, given today's modern beer crowd. But, damn it, I love it when somebody dials in a style and goes with it. All right. Yep, I agree. And our final piece of feedback here in the upfront section comes from Joe DeGoria, who said, Drew, you would be sad to learn that the shop you got your first kit at, as you mentioned on the show, Modern Homebrew Emporium in Cambridge, has closed, as has their sister shop, the South Shore Homebrew Emporium. And uh, Joe had gone on to describe that the owners basically got interested in running a brewery elsewhere, and the stores are closed, and now the clubs are sort of adrift. And that kind of makes me sad, because Modern Homebrew was really where I got my start. Boo. Well, you know, all things must pass, right? Yeah, I know, but still, it's still a bummer. All right, that's the end of the first part of the feedback. Feedback will be back later in the show, because like I said, boy, howdy, did you guys feed us back? And <laughs> But if you want to toss your feedback into the mix, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And we will get to your feedback when we get to your feedback. (laughs) How zen of you. (laughs) 
We're going to take a quick break here while we uh, walk over to the brewery. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what we've been brewing, what we're going to be brewing, and have more of the feedback from you. So stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. The 6th Annual Pink Boots Blend from Yakima Chief Hops is now available in homebrewer sizing on our website. A portion of the sales will be donated to the Pink Boots Society in support of its mission to provide educational opportunities to women and non-binary individuals in the fermented and alcoholic beverage industry. This year's Pink Boots Blend consists of laurel, Equinot and HBC 586. The blend is a punchy bouquet of bright citrus and tropical fruits. Laurel brings in zesty lemon and floral notes, then Equinot and HBC 586 come in and further drive the tropical citrus, adding stone fruit and bubblegum. Place your order today at yakimachief.com slash pink dash boots dash blend and brew your own pink boots blend beer. Welcome to the brewery, and I'm I'm speechless. Uh, <laughs> I'll just let Drew take this. Okay, so we know that there are a bunch of funny beer memes out there. God knows we've seen the chunky clam chowder New England uh, hazy IPA can more times than I care to admit. Uh, but the, the one that Denny, you actually posted the other day and got me dragged into the mess was a jokey <laughs> meme about a Kraft Mac and Cheese double IPA. Um, and while, and while that was being discussed on Facebook, uh, one of, uh, one of the commenters, Thomas Swords, uh, commented and told Denny not to challenge me. So Thomas, just for you, I, here you go. This is how I would make a mac and cheese double IPA. But I won't let him. So don't worry. This is all theoretical. Yeah. I would do a strong weedy pale ale base. So, you know, like a, maybe like a 50, 50 of wheat and, and Maris Otter or, you know, 60-40, something like that. Kind of like I was going for a white IPA sort of setup. Everybody's favorite ingredient, lactose. And then either defatted cheddar cheese powder, which you can buy on Amazon. God bless them. Or, right. or nutritional yeast, because nutritional yeast is commonly used by vegans to give things a cheesy flavor. So cheddar cheese powder for cheating, nutritional yeast to kind of fit more into my usual zen-like mode of operation here of trying to replicate flavors, not use the ingredients. Um, <clears throat> mostly whirlpool hops, 
debating whether or not that would be mosaic because it seems by law you have to have mosaic in an IPA these days. Um, or something a little more spicy and herbal, which would kind of be more culinarily appropriate. Take your pick. Yeah, uh, well, well, it might work nicely. There you go. Uh, ferment with London 3 to make sure that we preserve as much haziness as we can. And then pray that a gaping maw opens up and swallows me whole before I have to drink it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I won't let you brew it. <laughs> but, all right. Yeah, it's a funny meme. I've definitely never brewed this, mostly because I would not want to have to deal with trying to rehab the keg. And I'm not really a fan of throwing out beer <laughs> lines, which I'm pretty certain I'd have to do after serving something like that. Uh, but yes, gopping mauve for the win. <laughs> but you're going to be brewing some real beers, though, huh? Yeah, absolutely. This time of year is my busy season. So normally this time of year, it's gearing up for the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. And on top of that, as we put up in the top of the show, HomebrewCon in San Diego. I'm going to have to have beer there. Uh, so support the Falcons, make sure all this stuff happens. So now is the time when I got to sit down and do what I hate to do, which is plan and actually plan out making some cream ales, some mild, some IPA or two. And of course, a Saison or so, because if I showed up someplace without Saison, I suspect people would go, who are you? What have you done? And why are you a pod person? <laughs> really? Where's Drew? Where's Drew? Yep. But also this means that in order to do all this, I've got to go replace my chest freezer that I, that I got rid of uh, during the whole garage brewery rehab. So, on to, uh, I was wondering about that. Yeah, no. So, I got to go fix that. I got it for whatever reason, the little mini beer fridge is also sort of on the fritz. So, I got to figure out why that's fritzing. Yep. It's going to be time to get some new uh, cold storage capacity in here so I can actually do more, uh, more kegs at once. Cool. It's about time. I know. Yeah. I, I do want to make sure that people know, uh, you know, you heard in that list, there was no mac and cheese double IPA in that list. <laughs> That's right. Please pay attention to that. I do suspect that the goofiest thing I'm probably going to do is uh, I will try my hand at doing a cold IPA just to sort of suss out, you know, some of the, the, the brouhaha around the style and different ideas that we've had. And well, we'll get to that in the feedback, I think. But whose version of cold IPA are you going to make? Well, because there doesn't seem to be any agreement on what it is. Well, I was going to say, I'm going to make my version of a cold there IPA. You, go. you might as well. That's what everybody else is doing. Exactly. But I mean, it, uh, we've talked about this, but we'll save that for later. Dincenzo. Yes, sir. What are you brewing? So, uh, let me see. I have a, uh, Belgian IPA on tap that I've made. I get, you guys have heard me talk about this a couple times. And you've threatened me with a good time. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know what? And I'll, I'll send some down to you, whether it clears or not. It's being very slow to clear, but it's still delicious. Uh, I don't know why it's being slow to clear. It's exactly the same as the last batch in terms of ingredients and process, but... There you go. That's the beer gods for you. Uh, I have a double IPA that I had just cold crashed a couple days ago. This is kind of uh, based on concepts from uh, Block 15's uh, Sticky Hands and especially Bale Breaker's uh, Bottom Cutter. Uh, I went with uh, Munich and Crystal in the in the double IPA because Bale Breaker does it, and I figure if they do it, I can do it. Um, so that's cold crashing, and in another day or so, uh, I will add the dry hops to that for two or three days and then keg that baby up. 
And I'm I, I forget, did you say that you were going to change the temperature that you're doing your dry hopping at? I thought we had talked about that I, one point. Yeah, I, you know, I usually do it about 35. I may bump it up to 40 just for the heck of it, just to see if there's any difference. Uh, I am cold crashing at 35 and, you know, I'm, I'm after the uh, discussion we had with John about, uh, about chill haze and stuff. I'm wondering if that's really a good idea, but. That's what I'm doing anyway. So, and the, the sample that I took the other day, uh, it was it was crystal clear, so it's okay. So I'm getting ready to dry hop that sucker. I will be putting in two ounces of Yakima Chief Cryo Pop Original Blend. I will be putting in two ounces of Cryo Simcoe. Yeah, I think I'm going to like dig through the hop freezer and see if I can find uh, an ounce or so of some Cascade to toss in there because I actually want a little bit of that uh, that tannic vegetal flavor coming from the, the hops because sometimes all cryo hops can just be too clean, you know? So anyway, that's that's the plan. We'll see what it works. It's kind kind of an experiment uh you know, you know, we'll see what happens. See, but in the mean, and it's kind of funny talking about putting some cascade in there. That's sort of almost the dry hopping, dry hopping equivalent of what we talk about, like having a little bit of Chinook in the bittering. Yeah, 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 yeah. In, in a way, in a way, it is. You know, and uh, you know me, I like those traditional flavors, and uh, you know, it, it's like I said, if if Bale Breaker and uh, Block Fifteen can make beers with uh, more traditional hops to them, why can't I? But uh, on top of that, I'm kind of considering what to do because on March 19th, it will be the 25th anniversary of the first time I ever brewed, and it will also be my 600th batch. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to brew. Uh, my very first beer was uh, an extract version of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So I'm kind of thinking maybe I'll go with an all-grain version of that, but... I haven't really decided, so, you know, we'll see. I, I would do a rye IPA, but I did that for one of my other uh, centennial batches, so don't know yet. Well, you know, given that I'm going to be doing something with Sierra Nevada here real shortly about pale ale, it seems like pale ale is a perfectly reasonable uh, reasonable idea. Yeah, and, and I might because I don't have any pale ale around at the moment. I have I have a lot of IPA, I have a lot of Belgian stuff, and I have a little bit of German stuff, but uh, no pale ale. So I, I just may do that. Yeah, by the way, for anybody who is wanting to do the calculations, it looks like Denny averages running on about twenty four batches of beer per year. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> right. And uh, when I, you know, when I first started, I was just religiously brewing every other week, and sometimes even more often than that. But at least every other week, uh, I was working. I needed a, uh, a release from work. It seems like since I retired, I've been brewing less. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to actually take into account uh, my output lately. So we'll just say it's 24 a year, one every other week, basically. <laughs> there we go. It's, it's on a bit of a curve. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know what? Uh, averaging a, a batch every two weeks for 25 years, that's not bad. It, it's not like Martin Keene, who did uh, yeah. 99 beers in 99 weeks, but he's crazy. Uh, buddy, I hate to break it to you. You ain't much better. <laughs> yeah, well, at least I'm not crazy enough to do that. Okay, moving on. We have more feedback. Yeah, and so, yeah, so our first piece of feedback came from uh, Finn. 
who uh, Finn wrote in about DMS during the last Q&A show. And unfortunately, Finn's message kind of got cut off because Finn put all of his message into the subject and not into the body. Listening to your Q&A with Palmer on the team, I'm kind of surprised by the treatment of DMS. Why is everybody pretending that the results that Marshall Schott gets from his short and shoddy brewing don't exist? They must be well known by everybody. I've tried myself over a series of brews, and Marshall is right. No DMS. The reason why it works is no secret either. You can find it explained here, and he gives a German link. The short version. After 20 minutes or so, you reach a point where the formation of DMS from the precursor, a.k.a. SMM, is balanced by the evaporation. And at that point, the level of DMS is below the detection threshold. After that, there is no need to boil any longer in order to lower the level of DMS. To get rid of the precursor, you have to boil for more than the prescribed 90 minutes, because it takes 40 minutes to reduce it by 50%, meaning that after 90 minutes, you still have plenty to make enough DMS to make trouble. Uh, and then, uh, Finn, unfortunately, your, the rest of your message got cut off because I think you were about to give us more sources on this. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, DMS does not seem to be as much of a concern at the homebrew level. I think John's probably thinking more at the professional level. Um, and I don't really have any problems with it. Denny, you've done a lot of short boils. Yeah. Most of the time I've dealt with DMS in one of my own beers. I really felt like it's because I've had crappy yeast health or crappy fermentation mechanics. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think DMS is generally overblown in terms of worry. Uh, these days, it seems like you almost have to intentionally want DMS in order to get it. Right. And, you know, I've seen a number of things that point to the fact that it's boil vigor, not length, that makes the difference. So if you boil vigorously for, say, 20 minutes, then you're going to be getting rid of the DMS. Uh, keep in mind that John is a science guy, and that's the uh, the standpoint that his answer came from, whereas uh, Drew and I are more like practical, do this, don't do that. Experiential. Um, yeah, and I just have to make one quick comment here. It's not like anybody is pretending that Marshall's short and shoddy results don't exist. What I just want to point out is that those results – our results, anybody else that does a brewing experiment, that's a data point, not a conclusion. Take it into account and uh, try it for yourself and see what your conclusion is because that's all that matters. Yeah, well, it feels like, you know, if from what Finn has said, you know, he's been doing it for himself and it works as well, which is good. Go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, our next piece of brewing feedback came from uh, Sam uh, Southerd and Sam, if I said your name wrong, I'm sorry, uh, from New Zealand, who said, always enjoy the podcast. From the last one was a bit surprised you had nothing good to say about pressure fermenting. I always ferment with about 5 PSI, and then when raising temperature, put pressure up to 10 PSI. I find the advantages are, one, can take off gravity reading with picnic tap, no opening fermenter. Two, when crash chilling, no air is sucked back in. Three, final beer, nearly fully carbonated. Have also been happy with the last New Zealand Pilsner I made with Diamond Yeast. Elevated temperatures and findings give a pretty good lager in 16 days. Anyway, thanks a lot. Have learned a lot from the podcast and books. Yes, all three. Sam, just for that, Hooray. you're one of my favorite people. That's right. Yeah, you you win the uh, Listener of the Week award. There you go. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure to buy you a beer at NHC Club Night. Uh, <laughs> so do you want to address any of these things Sam said? Well, I mean... Look, so first things first, I think the reason why Denny, John, and I are all sort of if on pressure fermentation is at least for what I do, I don't see any need for it. Um, 
when we talk with other people who, you know, like been doing it professionally and all that sort of fun stuff, it also seems like, well, you know, a lot of times it's, it's a thing of bit of a mixed bag, you know, with different right. results based on different strains and different cir- circumstances. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, you kind of have to dial in and get to work correctly for you. Now, for a professional brewery, the idea of being able to turn around a lager in a shorter period of time because you've dialed in a technique for what you're doing makes absolute sense because beer time in tank equals money lost. Uh, for me as a home brewer, I honestly don't usually need a lager in 16 days. You know? Yeah. And so the extra equipment, the extra gear, and the extra fiddliness of it is not something that I find has a virtue or value for me. Now, then again, remember, I'm usually making milds and IPAs and saisons, none of which are going to pressure ferment. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, I, uh, you know, as I probably mentioned when we were talking to John, my decision is driven a lot by a seminar that uh, Chris White from White Labs gave when we were in Australia uh, using data that had been developed by John Blickman. And it, it just made it look too finicky. I had a long conversation with Chris about it too. You know, and you got to match yeast strain to temperature and pressure. And I know a lot of you guys don't deal with that and make great pressure fermented beers. But between what Drew said about really not needing any of those supposed advantages and having to deal with the uh, the possible downsides and hassles of getting it all matched up, I'm just not interested. Yeah. Now, by the way, one thing that Sam did say in there was about, you know, when chilling, no air sucked back in. Yeah, that's the reason why we use the grandfather connection kit. Well, yeah, but when I crash chilled both carboys and buckets, I would just seal them up and crash. Um, people say, oh, that's terrible. You're going to make that uh, carboy uh, implode. All I can tell you is I never did. Yeah, well, and the other thing I always do is I generally, I don't crash. I generally go down like by five degree increments. And uh, I, I crash, yep. which uh, I talked to John about, and uh, he says it's not good because it can release lipids into your beer that uh, will affect the heading. Uh, you know, I, I guess when I see that happen, I'll start doing it another way. Well, you know, Palmer is heading. Um, <laughs> but I tend to go down by five degree increments. Uh, that's five degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. Uh, for international listeners, I, I tend to go down in five degree increments and, you know, let it settle for, you know, a little bit and then continue to crash. And what I found is that if I do that, I don't get any sort of suck back either. If I'm not, if I don't bother to put the, the pressure kit on. So that's just my own experience. Um, and again, as we always say with this sort of stuff is if what you are doing is the thing that brings you joy and pleasure and makes a beer that you enjoy, then more power to you. After all, I am the guy who lights prayer and sends outside of his brewery just before he brews. <laughs> okay, I'll take this next one so you can rest your voice. This is from uh, Mark Bowman. He says, hey, guys, I hope you both are well. I just wrapped up listening to episode 168. Man, I felt compelled to reach out. I've listened to literally every episode and follow you both on Facebook. 
What I heard from you, and mostly Denny in the past, but largely in this episode, you like hop-forward beers, but are strongly against Hazy IPA. I'm not against it. I just don't like it. It's not the kind of hop-forward beer I like. There's no reason I should like every beer style. Mark goes on, you think pressure lager fermentation is a waste, but your mantra is questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, you know, we just explained why uh, we're not doing that, because we just don't need any of the supposed advantages that it offers. Uh, you are opposed, maybe, to using enzyme, but uh, made an episode on brewed IPA. Uh, I would like to point out, we're not against enzymes. Yeah. Neither one of us is against enzymes. We just don't want to use them. Oh no, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take that back for for a second. Which is, I'm not opposed to enzymes when they're being used for reasons that are good. The problem with brute IPA, maybe this is where Mark is thinking that we've kind of gone anti-enzyme. Is there have been a lot of people who used enzymes for making brute IPAs, and then ended up with downstream diastole problems uh, because the enzymes weren't being used in a way that was the most effective, and you know allowing for still generating clean beer flavors. Uh, one of my favorite breweries around here, Eagle Rock Brewing Company, they use enzymes in some of their pilsners and whatnot in order to drive them down and make them drier. And you know what? They're fantastic. But again, used appropriately. Uh, and I also know a lot of people who use enzymes to do things like do uh, gluten reduction. And perfectly fine with that. So I'm not anti-enzyme at all. What I am is anti-poor use of enzymes, which is pretty much my standard mantra about all ingredient use. I agree. So Mark continues, same episode, Palmer all but talks smack on cold IPA. I challenge that while homebrewers are often leading experimental approaches over prose, I know many professional brewers that move to a 3470-driven cold IPA approach in their West Coast IPA, but just call it IPA. Okay, yeah, fine. He's not wrong. I, I know yeah. I know several breweries that do that. So, uh, okay. All that being said, I'm not trying to talk crap. I just love your show, and you guys are my favorite. I challenge you maybe just to brew a hazy and a 3470 fermented West Coast. The days of lazy, hazy brewers is behind us. Dude, if you like hops, you're going to love the clean, dry of 3470 approach. Check it out. Report back. Swing through Colorado for GABF. We'll brew together. Cheers, dudes. Okay, well, you know what? I, I, I got to say, Mark, a lot of this seems to be that because we don't like what you like, then we're wrong. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, to me, to me, this is just pointing out, like, look, you know, we have we have our own particular things that we enjoy and our little bugaboos that we don't. And by the right. way, that's going to be true of every brewer uh, out okay. there. I mean, there's a reason why you can tell the recipe is one of mine because you see Magnum up in the front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me let me just address those two challenges specifically. Number one. I don't like hazy IPA. They're astringent. Uh, I, they're aesthetically unpleasing. Um, and the, they are generally way too low bitterness for me. So why would I brew something I didn't like? It would be like me brewing a whip beer. I used to brew whip beers all the time. And after I dumped out the fifth one because it had been in my beer fridge for six months and I wasn't drinking it, I decided, hey, you know, maybe you just don't like this style and you shouldn't be brewing it. 
Same thing with the hazy IPA. And you know what, Mark? I have fermented an IPA with 3470. And yes, it's nice and crisp and clean. But I have other ways of getting nice, crisp, clean IPAs also. Uh, a lot of different yeasts will do that for me. So, yeah, I don't have anything against people using 3470 for an IPA. I, I know from my own experience it makes a good one. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I, I hope that we've addressed your concerns there. Okay. And by the way, if anybody wants more reasons to consider 3470 and, and its ilk for making hoppy beers, I would suggest you go back and you listen to the episode I did with uh, Jack's Abbey. Because in that episode, they talk about why they like doing hoppy lagers. And they like it because they feel that with lager yeast, and specifically both the reduced ester formation in it and the reduced final gravities in it, that they can get a cleaner and brighter hop expression while also using less hop, right? So yeah. 3470 is perfectly good. I know. I think most of, if you hear us kind of uh, bagging on cold IPA, it goes back to some of what, what we were talking about up just a couple minutes ago. The problem is right now where cold IPA is, nobody agrees what it is. Is it a hoppy cream ale? Is it, you know, a warm fermented 3470 IPA? Is it, you know, something else? And we know that like Kevin Davies, for instance, has his description of what a cold IPA is. And then you have the about 20 or 30 different varieties of cold IPA that are being made out there on the market. So I think my, uh, I suspect most of what you're hearing us yabber about when we talk about cold IPA, uh, at least in terms of the negativity is just the idea of like, can anybody really settle on what that is? And the truth of the matter is right now, at least where the style is, no, they can't because it is a style in flux and in evolution. And so it's, but also because of the way that the news cycles work and the fact that everybody's sort of trying to look for the next hypey hoppy thing, uh, it's getting a lot of attention without really any, at least to my mind, any sort of real clarity around it. I am completely not opposed to a hoppy cream ale, by the way. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I am willing to make a bet here that we will receive at least three emails from people telling us what cold IPA is, and they'll all be different definitions. All right. So, listeners, there you go. There's your challenge. Uh, I want you to email me your definition, your serious definition of cold IPA. I'm trying to cut off the smart asses in the audience. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, then I can't enter. Uh, email us what you think a cold IPA is, what you've done for cold IPA, and then we'll bring it back together and we'll see if Denny's right, if there aren't multiple definitions of it. And again, I've had cold, cold IPAs that I like. I've had cold IPAs that I hate. Same thing with hazies. I'm not, I'm not as, uh, uh, completely anti-haze as, as Denny is. Uh, but I've had a great many of them that I just don't enjoy. So it's rarer for yeah. me to find a hazy IPA I like than, than one that I don't, that I don't like. Yeah, you know what, man? I uh, I keep trying them too. It's not like I've totally given up, but I, you know, I just have not found one that has what I'm looking for in a beer. If you like them, more power to you. Drink them. Yep. And so, anyway, Mark, this is a long way to go. That uh, one uh, challenge is good. So thank you for calling out the things that you're saying. I don't have any problems with it. Of course, uh, I think we would object to some of the uh, some of the statements about what we believe. <laughs> but yeah, we were mischaracterized. Dang it. You, you, you took my words and used them against me. Um, but no, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's good to always take a look and see what your preconceived notions are and make sure that you understand where they are. 
uh, and how those impact your answers, right? So I know our hazing answers are always going to be a little colored by our feelings about hazing. Uh, so I have no objections to somebody telling us where, what they see when we say things. Uh, just understand that sometimes I don't think you all get the full picture, or maybe we're just illy communicating our full picture, shall we say. There you go. All right, next. All right, this one comes from Eric Hutz, who writes, Since you mentioned on a podcast that you and Denny share emails, I'll start with the kudos. Started listening to the podcast during the plague. <laughs> My daily sanity check was a three to five mile hike in the area I live with podcasts on the headphones. Experimental Brewing was one of a core group of podcasts, not all brewing related, in my regular rotation. Still is, even with ukulele. Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you, Eric. Keep up the good work. Now that the kudos are out of the way, here is my Cezanne question. Put on your thinking cap, Drew. <laughs> I'm looking to brew Saisons in the future. Your Citra variant looks very interesting. It's also very and tasty. Was curi- <laughs> and was curious about your fermentation technique. Specifically, do you have a temperature threshold that you use for the free-rise part of fermentation? No. I t- <laughs> There you go. I didn't think so. I typically do my fermentation in a temperature-controlled basement. Ambient is usually between 65 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I use basic temperature control for the first few days to keep the temperature at around 66 to 68, but any free rise usually stays below 70 degrees. Does your technique allow for temperatures above 70, and if so, do you recommend heating the fermenter after the first few days? I'm transitioning to a system that allows for some heating after pitching and was curious whether the free rise you use is a temperature controlled or are you winging it in the California garage where the temperatures can get up there? Your thoughts would be appreciated since Saisons are getting harder to find, yet many people I know love them. Yeah, that last part reminds me of the whole uh, Yogi Berra quote, you know, uh, nobody I know goes there anymore. It's too crowded. It's too crowded. <laughs> Um, so, all right, Eric, uh, no, typically I don't control the, the free rise in terms of how high I let it go. Uh, at least I didn't used to before I had the glycol chillers. Uh, and yes, your point is well taken. I would let them sit in a water bath here in a California garage, which during the middle of the summer, I knew would get up to about 118 some days. Um, but the water bath did a lot of work to sort of mitigate a lot of that free rise. Um, no, I do not actively heat. So I would just let whatever, whatever heat's generated by the yeast take it up and let it go. Uh, now that I have the, the glycol chiller attached to everything, I, uh, most of the time I usually set it to like 75 or so, but I never see it actually kick on. Because uh, remember, by the time that you reach that stage where I let it go, so I temperature control for those first three days and then let it go, by the time that you get to that that third day, most of your exothermic activity is dying down. So you're not generating that much heat in there to begin with. So only thing I really do is I try not to let the beer fall too low, right? So like not really below 65 during that latter part of the thing. But I'm not actively trying to go, now you must be 80 degrees. Um, way, way back in the day when I did one of my first Saison yeast experiments, I did two portions of the same wort, one of which I just let free rise according to the ambient temperature of the area it was in, and the other one where I actively put a brew belt on there. You guys remember the brew belt? A little heating, oh, yeah. heating heat resistor? And I put that thing on there and ran that Saison at 80 degrees. And when you tasted the two samples side by side, oh boy, could you tell the difference. And it was not a good one. 
So uh, I tend to avoid active heating. And as for whether or not my technique allows for something, uh, I have a hard time calling what I do a technique. <laughs> yeah, at least a tech. <laughs> At least a technique that requires rigid controls, because uh, this technique is, implies some forethought, right? Well, it, it also it gives me sort of a sense of something way more Germanic than a Belgian beer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I uh, my basic process again is sixty three sixty five for those first three days of fermentation, open fermented, and then after that allow to free rise. But I basically just turn my glycol chiller up to like you know, have a ceiling of 75 degrees, but I don't try and actively dry it, drive it up there. Uh, and then most of the time it will come up to around 70 or so. And then just let it hang, do its thing. And life is good. And that's the technique. <laughs> that's a process. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but by all means, I mean, remember Cezanne yeasts are weird, strange, but resilient little critters. Uh, and they're very expressive the primary reason why I keep it cold for those first couple of days is I'm trying to sort of tamp down some of the fusel generation that you can get or the the overdriving of some of those yeast characteristics. Because I find that if I do that little tamp down in the beginning, I get a, a much wider and broader palette, you know, in, in the finish. So in, in the finished product. So there you go, Eric. Hope that helps. Good luck making saisons. If you have any other questions, please feel free to reach out to me. All right, and our last piece of feedback. This one gets a little bit long, but I think it has an easy answer, or or at least my first guess is an easy answer. Yeah, right. I think it has possibly several answers. Uh, we got a we got an email from Mark Winters titled "New England Check Logger," and Mark says, "Now that I've shocked you with the title, hmm. I would like to reassure you that this is by no means a real style, but a call for help. I've recently brewed a Czech dark lager and had a horrible time getting the beer to clarify. Here are the parameters." And he goes on to give us the recipe, the water profile. He did a uh, double decoction. Uh, he used Brutan B and Supermoss. He whirlpooled uh, and uh, fermented with the Imperial Urkel strain at 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. Lagered at 35 for a month and a half. Did two rounds of gelatin. Uh, and all of this, and the beer is still <laughs> hazy. And Drew and I both came up immediately with the same thought. Now, he did also he, he when he gave all the recipe his 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 thought was he said do i have too much malt protein that's causing this muddy haze to persist after all this time because he's got a combination of hana and uh, wireman barca malts in there uh and wondering if because of those being more heritage malts if that might be a problem but well you know the first thing that drew and i latched onto was looking at his water profile he had the calcium at 28 parts per million and that is about as low as you ever want to go. And again, here I'm going from what I've learned from uh, Martin Brungard, uh, our water guru. Uh, Martin says that for a lager, 25 is the minimum uh, for an AL50. That's because calcium causes the yeast to flocculate. And his idea is that uh, with a lager, you're going to be lagering it anyway, and that will help drop stuff out so you don't need as much calcium. But it's possible that maybe you didn't have enough in there for the yeast to really flocculate well. 
The other thing that stands out as a possibility to me is the double decoction. Uh, you didn't mention pH here any place. And, you know, if your pH was off uh, doing a double decoction, it's possible that you could be pulling tannins out and that could be causing the, uh, the haze that uh, he's seeing. Yeah, and so again, I think the first thing is the calcium. The calcium is the the part that makes me suspect, because I mean that Urkel strain should clear. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not renowned for being a super haze, but yeah, the calcium was what jumped out at me immediately. Particularly if you've done this now for what was the total lagering time on this? It was a month and a, a half. A month and a half with yeah. multiple rounds of gelatin. Yeah. See, and because uh, at the same time with that much lagering time and that much gelatin, I would suspect any malt protein would also be dragged out. You know, because I mean, the malt proteins are relatively large. Yeah, yeah, that's what you would think. But, uh, you know, we're kind of like yeah, shooting in the dark here. But looking at the picture that Mark sent us, I mean, it's, a, it's muddy, but it's muddy with that sort of yeast coloration to it, I think. You know, uh, but again, that's a total guess on my part. Yeah, right, right. So anyway, Mark, uh, I would say, first, first of all, let us know about your pH so we can see if we were even in the ballpark on that. I would try brewing it again and increase your calcium a bit and see if that helps. But, yeah, you know, we're, we're guessing. Well, And particularly because whenever you're down at those, the lower ends on something like that, you always have to be a little careful because it's, am I actually – Am I starting from the base of what I thought it was starting at? Are the salts I'm adding doing the having the impact that I think them that they're supposed to be having? Yada yada yada. There's a lot of downstream. Water is weird and complicated, and this is all biochemistry anyway. <laughs> Ooh, makes my head hurt. Exactly. Now speaking of not making our heads hurt, let's go talk oddly enough about more Czech beer. <laughs> yeah, and how to win competitions. We'll be right back after this break. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Choose your own brew venture. Join for one year and receive a complimentary brewing book to match your beer journey. Select from more than 60 books, including our favorite, Simple Homebrewing, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun, written by Denny and Drew. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and treat your shelf to a new brewing book. Get offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Yeast yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among Brewmaster's favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272 PC 
North American Lager, and 2352 PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. All right, welcome to the lounge. We've broken out the comfy chairs. We've broken out the smoking jackets. It's time to lay back and laze about while we think about beer. And no better way to think about beer than to talk a little bit more homebrew. And during the last uh, segment, we were talking about a Czech dark lager that didn't clear. But now we can talk about a Czech lager that has won multiple awards. And in order to do that, we're going to sit down and talk with David James of Denny's uh, Homebrew Club. Although uh, Denny is such a hermit and, and a stranger to them that I, you've never met David in person, have you? <laughs> no, well, the, the club meets at 7 o'clock at night, and that's way too late for me to go out. Uh, David is a member of the Cascade Brewers Society here in Eugene, and they run the KLCC Homebrew Competition, KLCC being our local national public radio station. Um, and uh, this competition has been going on for 20 years or so. Many, many years ago when it first started, I ran it, and after a few years ago, uh, my sanity just didn't allow me to, or, or lack of sanity, just didn't allow me to uh, to run it anymore, so it's been taken over. David uh, won this year, and David is a competition freak. I, I think, really think you're going to enjoy this interview. So please, sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and listen to David James talking about making award-winning beer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the lounge. Our guest today is Mr. David James, who is the best of show winner at the uh, KLCC homebrew competition here in Eugene recently. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure, man. We want to we want to steal all your secrets so that uh, everybody can (laughs) use them. So uh let's let's just dive right into this. So what kind of beer did you enter and win with? Uh so I entered a Czech Amber Lager, um, and that's what ended up taking best of show. Um this is a style I've been tinkering with for for a few years now. Um and it's just kind of a really entertaining style because there's a lot of maneuverability within the BJCP guidelines. Um so you can really kind of make it to to fit whatever you want uh at the time. So yeah, I mean that's a that's a style that not a lot of people brew, and it's really delicious. So um, number one, I'm telling you, uh, I'm going to use this recipe you sent us and try it myself. Uh, but uh, you said you've been working on it for a few years. Yeah, um, ironically, the the first time I entered it uh, in a competition, it was uh, a Dunkel's a Dunkelsbach. It was, it was brewed to be a Dunkelsbach, um, and I ended up adding uh, a little bit too many hops, and and um, it got a little bit too dry. Uh, and I was looking through the guidelines to see if something else would fit, and just kind of on a whim, entered it in as a as a Czech amber lager, um, and that actually ended up taking best of show uh, at a different competition. That was back in 2019. Um, and ever since then, I've really just kind of trying to to screw down on on what the style was and 
um, that in and of itself can be a little bit frustrating because, like I said, there's a lot of maneuverability. Um, yeah, right. It's a, a an intersection between a lot of styles, right? It's got it's got the hop character and, and bitterness of something like um, like an alt beer, um, but it's not an alt beer, right? Uh, it's it's got the malty caramel aspect of something like a Dunkelsbach, but it's not a Dunkelsbach. Um, so it's it's very much its own style, but um, is a nice intersection between a lot of other styles too. By the way, I'd like to point out that this is a perfect example of enter what you've brewed, not what you intended to brew. Right, absolutely. The the, the judges aren't going to know the difference, right? So so whatever fits is is what is what's best. I, I'm also really curious because you say, okay, this is a very broad style. If somebody were trying to get their head around it from a commercial point of view, are there commercial examples here in the U.S. that, that people can readily get their hands on that you'd recommend? Or, uh, how, or how did you dial in? Yeah, that that that's a that's a tough one. Um, there are microbreweries in the U.S. that make their own version uh, that's quite good. In fact, um, I have family on the East Coast up in Connecticut, and, and they just sent me a version from Fox Farm. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but they're doing some really awesome stuff. Um, and they just put out a Czech Amber that's that's really quite good. Um, you guys might be a, a better judge of, of some other uh, local stuff. I think getting... Getting exported beer in from Europe is always kind of a, a bit of a gamble because you don't know how long it's been sitting out on a right. you know, freight deck. Um, so it, the the freshness and that kind of stuff is is always going to be uh, a little bit uh, up to chance. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I mean everyone's kind of kind of doing their own thing, I guess. Um, so I'm not sure of, of exact samples, no. But but you guys might be able to fill me in. <laughs> I wish if we knew then. <laughs> we'd... Yeah. Well, this would be um, a good time to put out a call to our listeners to say, hey, what are the best examples that you can name? Yeah. yeah. Check Amber Lager. So how many iterations did you go through on this? Did you like chain, go through a lot of different recipe variations to kind of dial in what you ended up with? Yeah. Um, so I've taken two approaches. Uh, there's the more traditional one, I guess. Um, which is a, a you know a mostly a pilsner base um, or or a Vienna base with uh, a little bit of carafa and a little bit of Cara Munich, uh, and then you do you know two or three decoctions to kind of get that malt complexity going and, and some of those you know Maillard reactions and those really complex caramel flavors, um, and that works well. But it's it's a very long brew day. Uh, it's very involved. Um, so you know it, you kind of scratch that day off your off your list in terms of doing <laughs> yeah, anything right, else. Man. <laughs> um, and then there's the alternative route, which just leans a little bit more on, on specialty malts. Um, so you can, you can lean on a bit of biscuit and a bit of melanoid and malt, um, and add a little bit of Munich malt to your base. Uh, and then you can, you can skip the decoctions. And if you really want, you can pull off a couple quarts and boil it way down to a syrup and then add that back right. in to, to get some of those caramel reactions too. So I'm I'm gonna like run through the recipe you sent us here just so people can get an idea of what you do. Uh, 22% floor malted pills, usually Mecca grades gateway. 22, and I should mention that being here in Eugene, we have like great access to Mecca grade malts. Yeah, they're, they're a fantastic maltster. Oh boy, are they ever! 22% Vienna uh, again, Mecca grade. That's the Venora, I assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Th- 36% Munich, which is Mecca grade again. 11% mm-hmm. Cara Munich 3, which seems like uh, quite a bit, but obviously not. Uh, so you've also used Mecca's uh, Opal 44 here, which 
yeah, I agree. It has has kind of a similar flavor, but definitely is missing that kind of like crystal uh, character to it. Five mm-hmm. percent uh, melanoid malt, uh, which you say can be dropped if you favor a long decoction or wort reduction caramelization. Uh, I guarantee you, Drew and I would go for the melanoidin. Uh, and uh, and four four percent biscuit malt, which is interesting. Uh, what what OG do you shoot for, David? Um, generally, uh, 1.06, maybe a little bit less if I want to stay in the fives. Um, right. I use a lower attenuating yeast. Um, Bootleg has recently put out a, a, a beta version of a check logger they got when they went um, uh, and apparently collected samples there um, that, that tops out at about 70% attenuation. Um, you know, so the final gravity of, of a lot of these loggers is up at, you know, you know, 1.0, 1.6 or 1.7 or even higher sometimes. Uh, so you still get a relatively accessionable logger, uh, even with a, a higher than normal starting gravity. So, and I, I assume that something like maybe like Y East 2206 or even, uh, Logger S189 for a dry yeast would, would work. They're kind of like the same characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, in fact, I've used, uh, I think it was Omega's Bach yeast, um, which is the Anger strain. Um, that works mm-hmm. really well too. Uh, you know, any any kind of uh, medium low to low ester producing um, uh, low attenuation lager yeast would, would work really well in the style. So uh, how long did you lager it after it was done? I try to shoot for at least a month. I'm not I'm not a patient person. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll I put understand. It in the keg and, <laughs> and I'll get it. I'll get it burst carbonated within a, a couple of days and, and I'll be I'll be pulling. I'll be pulling what I call carb checks every few days. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and and I'll I'll try to. It's it's getting better each day. I have it uh, lagered, and and I should learn my lesson and just leave it there for at least a month. But oh, that, um, that's so hard, I man. To, I have I have a, a nine and a half percent Belgian IPA that's being slow to clear, and so uh, every day my excuse for having some is, well, I just want to see how it's clearing up now. Yeah, exactly. Clarity check, yeah, for sure. That's right. It, it's yeah. in the name of science, man, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you were saying that you're a postdoc uh, biology uh, major. Does that oh. really play into your brewing? Um, it's it's that or, or it's the ADHD. Um, maybe those go hand in hand. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, process-based things that I enjoy, Um and, and so having kind of structure and, and things to do help. So this is a great hobby for me. Um, I think it was the, I think it was the AHA that, that came out with that, that hokey saying, you know, it's, it's not rocket science unless you want it to be. Um, yep. so, so brewing is what, what you want it to be. And for, for me, uh, I really enjoy the, the process side of things. Um, so, uh, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a blast to learn how to, to brew all these different styles. So tell us about the, the equipment you, you use when you brew. Yeah, so I got my hands on a first-gen foundry uh, back in 2018, 2019, um, and have been using that pretty much ever since. Um, it it uh, has served me as, as far as efficiency and um, and covering all the basic stuff. I think the only snag I've run into is when I want to do a really high-gravity beer. The, the all-in-ones don't hold a lot of grain, so um, that's been difficult, but but for everything else, it's it's perfect. Cool. 
yeah, uh, we love our all-in-ones too, man. Uh, they just they make stuff so easy and and quick and and fun. And you know, uh, you're a process guy. I'm a fun guy when I brew. That's <laughs> a fun guy. It's, it's, it's <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, that that's all I want to do is just have a great time brewing. And, and then if I'm lucky, there will be beer comes out the other side. So tell us, this competition had like, what, 172 entries? That is correct. Uh, I see here. I'm looking at the notes that Michael sent me. Um, and you judged some of them. What categories did you judge? Yeah, um, I basically was stuck with the categories that I, I didn't end up entering entries into. Uh, so yeah, I ended course. up doing uh, Belgian beers and ciders. Um, and, and Belgians was a, a fairly large table. I, I think we got 16 or 17 entries there. Um, so so that was, uh, it was interesting to get through some, because there's some very big beers. Um, so it was interesting to get, to get through that. But um, but yeah, so so we did, we did Belgians and ciders. Wait, back up. How many entries did you have in this competition? Uh, there were 170 plus total entries. I think um, 50 something entrants. Well, yeah, but uh, how many? How many were from you? Oh, me. Uh, uh, I think I put in. I want to say nine or ten. So not not you know <laughs> wow. a ton, but but a lot. Yeah. Um, so uh, in other words, you got a ton. You were responsible for 5.3 percent of the entries. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a mathematician, but I'll I'll I'll. I'll, I'll say, yeah, sure. <laughs> Man, that is some dedication. Uh, I've never done anything nearly that crazy. I, I, um, I don't know if dedication is the word, uh, but, <laughs> but <laughs> obsession might be, might be along, uh, along the lines too, but yeah. They make medication for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what were some of the other beers you entered? Um, let me pull up the list. I have a lot of beers that, uh, my age for a long period of time, um, you know, big barrel aged stouts and a lot of wild ales. Um, so it's really easy for me to just pull a few of those bottles and, and enter them in occasionally and see how they do. Um, other than that, I have a, a four tech keg grader. Um, so I generally have at least four kegs on, um, and then I'll, I'll sometimes stick a couple kegs in the garage if, if I'm not actively drinking them. Well, see, um, so. people forget that like back when Jamil, for instance, was winning the, um, the Nikasi award all the time mm-hmm. uh, that he, what he was doing wasn't like he was brewing every year. He just had a bunch of dedicated cold storage and spent a lot mm-hmm. of time focusing on packaging so mm-hmm. that when he came out to the other side, it was like whenever it was competition time, it was like going, well, that beer is two years old, but still drinking fine. And that went into the competition and that sort of thing. So sometimes <laughs> having a bottle seller that's well cared for it and well packaged beer is handy when you're trying to compete. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I ended up entering, uh, one, two, three, three different wilds, uh, three different um, large stouts, either either barrel aged or, or adjunct heavy, um, and then a few a few lagers in an IPA as well. So the lagers and the IPA were the only ones I actually had on tap. Everything else was already bottled and sitting in my garage. You know, man, I don't know about you, but I have found in my competition days, when I would try to brew for a competition, I would often get pretty darn disappointing results compared to just kind of like looking at the beer I had around and going, boy, that's a damn good beer. I'm going to try and enter that one. Yeah, um, I think I think I've had a similar experience when I push myself a little bit too hard um, and try to try to brew a beer specifically for a competition, especially if it's last minute. 
um, chances are it's not, it's just not going to do well. And then I'm stuck with a beer that either I, I don't really want to drink all that often, um, or just isn't any good for any other competition. So it's just kind of a lose lose. Um, so yeah. I've, i started as of late, just leaning a little bit more on stuff that, uh, I want to brew and stuff that stores well. Um, and if it does well in a competition, that's, that's great. That's fun. You get some cool feedback. Uh, you get a hooky little metal. Um, but, uh, if it doesn't, it's still something I want to drink and still something I like having around. Right, man. Um, brew for yourself. That's the, right. the, the first rule. And, and if you like it, uh, there's a good chance somebody else will too. Yeah, for sure. So what kind of advice could you give to people who want to make award-winning beers? I mean, what are, what are the important things that you focus on when you're brewing? Um, yeah, there's, there's a few, I think, uh, that, that aren't going to be, um, that I wouldn't consider like too, too trite. Uh, one of them is, is don't, don't change your recipe last minute. Uh, I think, um, <laughs> a lot of people will come up with, with a good recipe. And then when they're out buying the grain, um, or, or even when they're milling the grain, they'll say, Oh, I have this on hand. I'm just going to add a handful of this or a handful of that, or, or they shift hop amounts or, or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and when you do stuff like that, you, you introduce variables that you can't, or it's very difficult to account for. Um, and that makes reproducibility hard. Uh, and then that, that ultimately makes, uh, improving your recipe hard too. Um, and then other than that, I think cold side handling and oxidation, um, are, are super important, not just for hop heavy beers like IPAs, but, but for really for everything you're doing. So, uh, if you have the opportunity to do, uh, closed transfers or, or at least, you know, flush your kegs out and, and fill them with CO2 before you, before you package, that's, that's super important. Do you worry much about, uh, aeration on the hot side? Uh, a, a real hot topic these days is, uh, is low oxygen brewing with people taking great steps to say de-aerate their mash water sure. keep oxygen out of the whole mashing process do you do anything like that uh i've i've fiddled with it a bit yeah um uh i've recently gotten back into to uh danny i think this is your favorite style of the new england hazy ipa uh oh yeah no, i love them <laughs> um but but really any 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 hop heavy beer I've, I've tried to do some of the lodo um stuff where you're treating the water with metabisulfate and doing a pre-boil and all that stuff. Um, I don't know how much of a difference it makes compared to something like, you know, a limited boil or, or proper cold side, um, handling. Uh, I have people who tell me they can taste the difference between Lodo made lager and a non-Lodo lager, but, um, I personally can't. Uh, so it's something I've been fiddling with, but I just don't know how much of an impact it has. I, w I would challenge those people to do a, a blind triangle tasting and then see if they still say the same thing. Yeah, yeah, that might definitely be the case. So, it, David, what's one style that you tried to brew for competition that you failed miserably at? Ooh, um, I can actually go on Reggie and look at some of my scores and <laughs> try, and, try and find the most embarrassing one for you guys. Give me, give me oh, half good. a second. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Uh, Barring, barring something like an infection, which I think happens every once in a while, um, I made uh, one time I made a, a, a peach tea blonde ale, um, and uh, 
the tea was entirely too astringent and there wasn't enough hops. And then the pectin from the peaches just turned it into this gross <laughs> kind of orangey milkshake looking thing. Um, and tea it, it jelly. Was, yeah, it was just, it was, it was the most miserable failure of a beer as, as far as, uh, you know, BJCP <laughs> and competitions are concerned. But I had a few friends, this was back in Florida when I was in grad school, I had a few friends who didn't know any better. So they were, they were quite happy to drink it. So <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 as far as I'm concerned, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's fine with me. Well, this goes back to the co- comment I had in the episode of Masa of, uh, on the brew files where, you know, it turns out that free beer is incredibly attractive. Yeah. 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 Best, best beer is free beer. Uh, second best is cold beer. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll just have to take your word for that, man. I, <laughs> I, I'm afraid there's a few things I wouldn't drink, even if they were free and cold. But, you know, <laughs> you'd be surprised. It goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so, uh, so no good on the on the peach uh, tea beer. Did you ever yeah. try and redo that idea and make it better? Or uh, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of of tea. Um, so no, uh, I have I have used peaches in other styles and I really liked it. I made a, a Lichtenheiner with with um, with grilled peaches that was that was really quite good. Um, uh, but but no, I haven't given the the peach tea blonde another another stab. So is there anything new that you're working on? Um, let's see. Uh, so I. I'm getting ready to actually do some of the the sibling beers for the Czech Amber. I got the Czech Pills planned um, and a Czech Dark as well. Um, it's a style, obviously, that I <laughs> that I like working with. But yeah, um, it's those two I have not brewed nearly as much as the Czech Amber. Um, so I'm excited to kind of uh, uh, give those another go. Czech dark lager is a great style, man. I just absolutely love it. I don't see it very often. And uh, when I can find a good one, I really get into it for sure. Yeah. Well, I do think it's interesting because Denny and I have talked about like uh, the bar or the brewery now up in Maine that's doing the two Czech beers. Like suddenly I think people have started to realize that there's like a whole world of Czech beer beyond Pilsner. Yeah, it is really I'm really hoping to see more development around that and particularly to see if we can start to understand like what the difference is between that fresh versus like what it tastes like when it gets over here after being shipped across the ocean. Right. Um, Right. But I'm all for more interesting, diverse lager flavors. Yes. I I don't know when lagers became popular again, but I love it. it. It has been so refreshing to, to walk into a, a brewery and not see like an entire list of IPAs and one stout and nothing else. Um, so to, to go in and, and see three or four lagers on, on tap is, is fantastic. Well, and here in Southern California, I don't think you can walk into a brewery. I mean, when you'll walk into a brewery and see a lot of IPAs, that's just box standard. But I don't think you can walk into a brewery and not see at least two lagers, one of which is probably going to be billed as a Mexican lager. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other one might be a Pilsner or a German Pilsner, depending right. upon how hoppy it is. Um, right. Now, you, you've been doing these uh, Czech lagers and have been winning uh, winning with them. Do you have any any lager tips in general that you recommend beyond patience? Uh, yeah, uh, patience is unfortunately a really, really big part of it. Um, I, I would say that the beer... Um, 
the beer that you put in the keg and maybe taste a couple days after you get it carved is not going to be the same beer a month or two months later. Um, so I've, uh, you know, I've made the mistake of, of tasting a lager right after carb and writing it off as, as a failure and kind of putting it in cold storage and coming back to it uh, a month later and thinking, all right, if this isn't any better, I'm going to dump it. Um, and, and it's a completely different beer. Um, so, so, you know, due diligence, do your, do your actual lagering time. Uh, you can drink it along the way, but, but, you know, don't, don't get upset if, if what you put in the keg is not what you want. That's a really good words of wisdom, man. Uh, Although don't forget also at some point in time, you have to cut bait and fish. Yeah. 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 There's no shame in pouring out a keg that you won't drink, and we've talked about that before. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely not. Um, it's it's you're brewing this ultimately for yourself, and if if you don't like it, then don't keep it around. <laughs> really, man, and it, it it takes a while to learn that lesson. You know, so many people think, oh, geez, I put so much work into this, uh, the the cost of the ingredients and stuff like that. Uh, it's a really bad beer, but I'm going to force myself to drink it as punishment. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you know, you don't yeah. need to punish yourself. Beer is for enjoying, not punishment. Well, see, that exactly. makes that makes far more sense when it's like learn by learn to cook by eating your mistakes because that's just <laughs> one meal. Yeah, but yeah, sure. trying to punish yourself through a, a whole five gallon keg of a beer is a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> really, was, really um, a bad. I was I was less I was less likely to to dump beer back in grad school because I had I had undiscerning grad students who would just drink it instead. <laughs> but, but, uh, but these days, yeah, if, if it's something I don't like or I'm not, not terribly proud of, it's, it's going down the sink. So uh, are you going to be in San Diego for homebrew con in June? I'm going to try. Uh, I think it actually literally falls on my, on my birthday. Uh, my birthday is oh, on June 23rd. So, cool. so um, if, oh, man. if, uh, what, if what I can make it gift? absolutely, but, right, exactly. If I can't make it, I'll, I'll absolutely be down there. But, but, um, uh, we'll we'll have to see where you know where the cards fall, I guess. Absolutely. Be sure and let us know if you end up going. We'd love to get together with you. Absolutely. Yeah, we're just. We'll buy you a beer. Uh, I'll buy you any beer that you want at club night. <laughs> well, we have been talking with Mr. David James, the best of show winner from the KLCC homebrew competition here in Eugene. There were 172 entries this year, and uh, one of them could be yours next year. Uh, we'll let you know when it's coming up, and be sure to uh, get your entry in. It's a great competition. Uh, there's some great beers there, uh, really good judging. I know the people that judge, and uh, I know that they work really hard at it, and they're really quality judges. So uh, if any of you out there are thinking about uh, sending beer off for a comp, this would be a good one to go to. David, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today and for sending us your recipe, which I'm going to do without a decoction. And we'll post on the website. That's Great. right. Pleasure's all mine, guys. All right. Take it easy, man. So what do you think, man? You going to try some of those? I mean, if I can find the time. <laughs> I mean, I just <laughs> uh, personally, I would just be happy to have the beer. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully I can do that too, but uh, I am definitely going to try his his recipe there. It sounds really interesting. It's a style I enjoy, and uh, if it screws up, I can ask him questions. There you go. Wouldn't that be nice? And uh, yeah, obviously, more uh, more Czech lagers, amber, dark, pale, bring them. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Shall we, shall we close this puppy up? Let's get the heck out of here. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with a quick tip and something other, and then get out of here. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. start things off here with a quick tip that comes from my bitter experience as they often do i was gonna say this one sounds uh, like you were tempting fate <laughs> yeah it, it was uh, i my, my quick tip is always use a blow-off tube unless you have a huge fermenter with a little bit of beer in it there's really no reason not to uh, unfortunately, I didn't follow my own rule recently and uh, ended up with a, a airlock clogged uh, three different times on the same batch. One of the times when I was staying there, it actually blew out and went eight feet across the room. Uh, it was very, very impressive. Uh, but I... You know, I was tempting fate. I had made a, a strong beer, a double IPA. Uh, I had used uh, two packs of uh, Lollamans BRY 97 in it. And most damningly, I had put 6.75 gallons into an 8-gallon fermenter. Oops. You know? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things is I was doing it. I was thinking, you know, this might be a problem, but my greed for more beer got the best of me. <laughs> and so... I, I paid never the price. Yeah, right. I, I, I paid the price. I'll be cleaning that fermenter for a long time when the batch is done. I already spent half an hour cleaning the insulating jacket around it. Uh, so use a blow-off. Uh, I'm either going to start using a blow-off or putting less beer into my fermenters, believe me. And uh, I, I would recommend to you uh, that you always use a blow-off uh, if there's any slight chance that you might need it. Well, then that's going to make me ask, what's your favorite way of doing a blow-off tube? Well, when I was using a carboy or something, I would just get a piece of tubing that was the size of the opening of the carboy. What is that, like an inch and an eighth or something like that? And uh, run that into a, a jug of water, sometimes star sand. Um, then uh, as, as I went on, I, uh, I went to putting the piece of tubing onto the inside of a three-piece airlock and using that for a blow-off. 
Uh, I think in this situation, that may not have worked because there was so much croissant and yeast coming out of that thing that that might have gotten clogged too. Yeah. So. Pro tip, if you do that, which is what I did for years, make sure you cut off the little cross on the bottom of the airlock. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, all right, well, and then, of course, now that you're in the grandfathers, you're going to have to figure out a new uh, blow-off tubi system, right? Yeah, I, and that's kind of why I didn't bother with it, because they're kind of like sitting up on a table, and it, uh, the way I have it set up, a blow-off is not easy. Uh, but if I'm ever going to try and do what I did again, stupidly, then I'm going to have to figure out how to do a blow-off. <laughs> there we go. And let's let's never, ever doubt in the capacity for any of us to be stupid. Oh, no, we can do that easy. All right. And so finally, before we let you go, something other than beer. And I got two things, one of which is quick and probably generate more feedback. Uh, the first one, though, I want to talk about something very positive. There is a woman out there, uh, Beryl Sheroshevsky, who has a YouTube channel. And her motto is finding common ground through food. And Beryl had been a presenter for like one of these sort of millennial online news stations for a while and then worked with CNN and whatnot. And then uh, COVID came around and found herself without a job. So she went and she launched this channel. And everything about this channel is about using food around the world to discuss how people eat and kind of find that, those things that are common. And the reason why I latched onto her was – a friend of mine posted a whole thing about a series that she did. It was like eight episodes long. And by the way, these are eight, like 20 minute a piece episodes. So this wasn't like, you know, something short about different varieties of toast from around the world, like different things that people put on toasted bread and talking about this. And yeah, so it's like, you know, peanut butter and like, like here in the U S or, you know, uh, Jaffa toast or other, uh, other things from other parts of the world. And what I thought was really, really cool about it was it wasn't just her being a talking head and making the food. She brings her listeners in and has them describe these dishes that they love and why they're important to them and what they're made of and why they reflect certain cultural values or cultural touchstones for them. And then she makes them while they're talking and then sits down and tries them and, and responds to them. And overall, she is extraordinarily positive and obviously very adventurous in terms of what she loves to eat. Uh, she'll tell you if she doesn't like something, but for the most part, she's, she treats this whole series as a chance to sort of positively explore other people's cultures. And again, it's the, the things I love about it is that the episodes aren't like about, you know, the sort of the fancy cultural food dishes, the things that you try and show off as like, you know, that's your feast meals. It's things like, again, toast or, what do you eat when you're sick? You know, what do you, what do you eat when you have no time? You know, like how do you, what do you do with rice? Um, and I just love it because she, again, positive, enthusiastic, and, you know, shows a lot of very simple things that you can very easily incorporate into your own food routines. And also just a reminder that people like to eat around the world and they have flavors they love. Uh, now for the thing that's short, that I suspect we'll get more uh, feedback if you've been watching as we're recording this, uh, spring training is in flight. Denny and I both like baseball a lot. And I will say that I am looking forward to all the early baseball season chaos caused by the new pitch timer. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. glorious. And I, I want to see people start whining about the bigger base bags. <laughs> oh, that's already been happening. But uh, yeah, I, I guarantee you that this season – Every team out there is going to be on the 
the losing side of a pitch timer violation or they're going to be on the winning side of it and their fans are going to complain when they lose because of a pitch timing violation and they're going to rejoice when they win because this is what fans do. And also, I hate Manny Mikado. I still hate Manny Mikado. I will hate Manny Mikado until the end of time because of Dustin Pedroia, the first guy in baseball history to get called for a pitch clock violation as a hitter because he did it during spring training. Suck it, Manny. <laughs> okay, I don't know what any of that meant, but uh, I take it you're very passionate about it. Yes, I am. So All right. I am looking forward to the early season chaos because we're already seeing it in spring training. I love it. And by the way, if anybody wants to complain, I've watched a number of minor league games over the past couple of years where they've had the pitch timer. And guess what? It works. It makes the game actually move along. More power to them. Yeah, it does seem like a logical thing. And speaking of logical things, it's logical for us to get out of here because we've been here long enough. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. And remember, it's a snazzy new website that Drew is migrating stuff to as we speak. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Slack Homebrew channel and the Homebrewing subreddit. You can find me on a lot of different forums, the AHA Discussion Forum. Forum, the uh, the brew house at the beer garden, or is it the other way around? Um, you can find me hanging out on Facebook way more than I should. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, uh, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, we got someone rant and raving in those letters there. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com and you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL that's 626-765-1253 so until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing (laughs) 